Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. We hear about mass shootings all of the time. They dominate our news for a couple of days and then we move on doing nothing. Sometimes in our local news, we might hear about a local shooting, which kills one or two or three people. But what we rarely hear about is the constant background of gun violence that takes place in our country every day when about 120 people die from gunshot wounds and about 200 are shot and survive. People like Ethan Song, a teenager who was accidentally shot and killed when a gun was discovered in a cardboard box at a friend's house. Ethan's mother, Kristen, is fighting to make sure no other family experiences her heartbreak. And she joins us today. heavy hearts coming together there to remember the life of a teen tragically killed in a shooting on Wednesday. Ethan Song was 15 years old, but he left a big impression on the Shoreline community. We're talking about a beautiful little girl with a big smile and a bright future, and now all of it gone because she and her brother found a gun. Police are also telling us the circumstances surrounding this shooting. They say that three-year-old boy was in one of these apartments here at Laurel Place off Lucas and Hunt Road at the time of the incident. They say somehow he got a hold of an unsecured firearm, discharged it, and hit himself. There's a new analysis out tonight of CDC data shows that gun-related injuries, things having to do with guns, are the leading cause of death for kids and teens for the second year in a row. Not car crashes, not overdoses, not cancer, it's guns. Hi, my name is Kristen Song, and I'm fighting to pass Ethan's Law nationally and state by state if I have to. Sorry, not sorry. Kristen, welcome to Sorry, Not Sorry. I have so much that I want to ask you, but before we do, can you tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Prior to January 31st, 2018, I was just a stay-at-home mom with three wonderful children, and then my whole world was imploded. So on January 31st, 2018, my child, Ethan, who had just turned 15 12 days before, got his braces off that morning, and we headed off to breakfast. And he was in such an incredible mood. He just sat there and told me about all of his hopes and dreams. He wanted to go to Rice University. He wanted to join the Army after that because he felt such a um, commitment to this country. And he wanted to marry and have seven children. And I think looking back, it's probably the best conversation I ever had with him. And so that day I was feeling really content. 
and feeling like all my kids were in such a great place. My daughter was in nursing school. My son was at Boston College. Ethan was just really taking off and really becoming into his own. And we came home and his best friend, who he had known since kindergarten, came over and they wanted to walk to his house. He lived down the street. And um, about an hour later, I saw two police officers walking across my front lawn. So that began my absolutely um, unimaginable journey into the criminal case to finding out that the negligent gun owners usually get a pass and to my then resolve that was not going to happen anymore. I think to paint the picture, sort of the contrast between the prior to Ethan being killed and post. I want to know who you were before and then who you were the day of and who you committed to be when you found the resolve to make this your life's work. It's so interesting you asked that question. In fact, you are the only person that's ever asked me that question. It's interesting because about six weeks after Ethan was killed, I sat down and wrote who I was and who I am now. Because, and I wrote it actually in third person because I would look at myself in the mirror and I could not grasp the person I was looking at. So before Ethan died, I was a litigator. And when I got pregnant with my daughter, I decided I was going to stay home with my children. And when I tell you that my children filled my cup of joy, they were really my everything. I was only as happy as my most unhappy child. I was so content being home, being a wife and a mom to these three kids. And just like any other ordinary mom, I ran my kids to a gazillion activities. You know, we went to church on Sunday. I helped out with their book reports. I made dinner every night. I made a point for my family to sit down and have a family meal every night. I was very adamant about that, even though we had a gazillion activities. I was adamant that we took family vacations together. My family was my top priority and they came first. You know, when Ethan was 10, he asked if we could foster unwanted dogs and neglected and abused dogs. And here was a 10-year-old asking me to do something like this. And he put a quota. He wanted to reach 100 foster dogs. And the day he died, we had his 95th foster dog. So that was my life. When I tell you it was a lovely little ordinary life, it was. And I was 100% content and knew I was blessed. You know, like I said, on the day of, he was getting his braces off. And this was a big deal because he was the kid that had every contraption in his mouth. And so it took four years. So, you know, he was really just excited that day. He was coming out of his brother's shadow, who was a varsity athlete, who was top of his class. He was finding his own way. And I just felt so content that day. That doesn't happen very often in a mother's life. I understand that. Trust me, I don't think I've had a day of that since my kids have been born. Yeah. A, a day that just felt like everything's going to be okay. That's exactly how I felt. I felt like, I was like, I am rocking it as a mother. I've got everyone in such a great place, you know? And then after Ethan died, I tell people that the moment those four words passed the ER doctor's lips, which was your son is gone, my DNA completely changed. I literally um, became a completely different person. Not only did my children lose their brother. They also lost the mother that they had known their entire life, who they loved and trusted and knew that whatever happened, that mom was going to be our rock. And I was not. 
I really seriously, about six weeks later, I was sitting in my kitchen. I was holding a cup of coffee and I was watching my son, Evan, packing up his backpack. And there used to be two boys packing up their backpack. And, um, you know, I looked out out of the corner of my eye and I saw Ethan's backpack at the moment he had dropped it on the last day of his life. At that moment, I decided that I was not going to make it, that the pain was just too intense. And it was crazy because my son, Evan, looked up at me. You know, he stopped packing the backpack for a minute. He looked at me and he said, are you going to hurt yourself? And I just stood there and he said, I'm telling you right now, mom, if you go, I'm going right after you. I will not survive if I lose another member of this family. Sydney Aiello lost one of her closest friends during the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High last year. She graduated and learned to teach yoga, brightening other people's days, her family says. But her mother says Sydney also felt survivor's guilt and was diagnosed with PTSD. She never asked for help before taking her own life eight days ago. Then, this weekend, a current sophomore died by suicide. Does it reopen the, the trauma of what you guys went through? I mean, all of a sudden, it's like 2018. We're going to have to think about funerals again. I remember my immediate reaction, not to him, but internally, was just being pissed off. Because the moment that morning I decided that suicide was my option, I actually felt relieved because I knew that I was going to be able to get out of this crushing pain. And when Evan looked at me and told me that if you go, I'm going, I knew my only other choice was to live. And I was furious. I was furious at him. I could not believe he was asking me to stay around. So it's craziness. Like it doesn't make any sense. But when you're going through it, it makes perfect sense. As you're telling me and conveying the emotion and what you're feeling at the time, it almost feels like a scene that someone would write in a film. And it feels like that probably is maybe what you felt living it. Like, how could this possibly be happening? How is this my life now? Oh, it's funny that you struck on that because when Ethan died, when your child is involved in a criminal case, you're told very little about your child and what happened to your child. And for a all-in mom, for someone who knew everything about my children, that was absolute, complete torture to me. And so what I did was, in order to process, in order to cope, I started writing out what I imagined him doing that day from the time he left our home. And basically, I go back and forth between my point of view and his point of view. And I actually had to imagine that in order for me to process a little bit of his death because I knew so little for so long. It's really interesting you say that because I would be up at like three o'clock in the morning writing because you no longer sleep. And I would sit there and I would write out these chapters, these pages of what Ethan was thinking when he was in the bedroom, what was happening outside the window, what was his friend doing at that moment, who picked up the gun. That is literally how detailed I got. 
in order to process my son's death. And I carry that story all the way until the trauma team meet him at his ambulance. One of the things I was actually just writing up was my vision of asked to meet with the EMT and the fire department and the police because I wanted to know that my son was not scared. And I wanted to know that someone was with him every moment until his last breath because I could not be there for him. And I failed him as a mother. And so I met with everyone from the moment that fireman got into the bedroom and saw my son struggling to breathe to the female police officer who, when Ethan came out on the stretcher, slipped her hand into Ethan's hand and stayed with him until he was loaded into the ambulance. And then to the EMT who promised me that he comforted Ethan until he was handed off to the trauma team who... Remarkably, the ER doctor's children went to school with Ethan, and so he knew who this child was and um, promised me that the nurses and the doctor stayed with him until he took his last breath. Those are things that, um, you know, tortured me. I wanted to make sure that my child wasn't alone. And then, unfortunately, I was not allowed to say goodbye to him because he was... um, as the ER doctor said, unrecognizable even to a mother's eyes. I don't want to make you relive what happened to him, but I do think it's important so that people understand what you're fighting for. What happened to your son? So I would find out when the criminal investigation was complete that Ethan's best friend for six months had been accessing his father's unsecured guns. The father had left them in a shoebox, three handguns with the bullets. So the ammunition and the guns were together. And two weeks before my son was killed, the father took um, Ethan's best friend and Ethan in the backyard and he taught him how to shoot without our permission or our knowledge. And so what happened was that his friend was literally parading through all of his friends and they were taking pictures of themselves with the guns, taking videos of them like they see in the movies and stuff like that. And I would come to find out that on a prior occasion, his best friend loaded the handgun without Ethan's knowledge and didn't realize that a bullet can get stuck in the chamber. So both boys thought the guns were unloaded. You know, his best friend was 14. He had no business having access to those guns. Other news tonight, a 13-year-old boy shot and killed one of his best friends last night. That's already a tragedy. What's worse is the reaction from friends and parents who tell us they weren't surprised by what happened. And they've given us this video to back up those feelings. Let's bring in Mara McDonald live at Detroit Police Headquarters. Mara, it appears it's not the first time they played with weapons. That's right, Devin. And what you see here is video of these boys who were involved last night. Video that shows them messing around with a handgun that they sent to other students. There's some discrepancy. Before the complete report came out, I got a couple of phone calls from one from an FBI agent, run from a woman who sits on the committee who reviews all of the children's deaths in the state of Connecticut and one from a private investigator who told me that I should contact the medical examiner and left it at that. All along, the prosecutor had been telling me that Ethan accidentally shot himself. And when I talked to the medical examiner, he did not believe that. He believed that Ethan was actually pushing the gun away from his head when it went off and that his best friend was the one who actually shot him. 
we'll never know because Ethan's best friend has never spoken about it. And of course, Ethan is dead. I want you to tell us about Ethan's law and how hard you've been working to get it passed. Tell us what it is. Sure. The day before the first Thanksgiving that we were going to spend without Ethan, I sat across the table from the prosecutor and she informed me that she was not going to prosecute the negligent gun owner, but instead she was going to charge the 14-year-old son with manslaughter. And, you know, my husband and I just looked at ourselves because in, in our home, the buck stops with the adult. You know, in our home, it is up to us to protect not only our children, but children who come into our home. And that is why when we have a pool, we had a fence around our pool. And that's why we have working smoke detectors. And that's why when children get into my car, they put their seatbelt on. It is our job. It is not our children's job to take on the job as an adult. And so it just really infuriated both my husband and I. And I just said to her, you understand that this is never going to change. We are never going to have a cultural shift until we hold people accountable, meaning the gun owners. It was the gun owner who chose to bring four guns into his house, one rifle that he left in the downstairs hallway closet unsecured, and three handguns and bullets. He brought those into the home. And she said, you need to change the law. And she literally threw that burden into my husband in my lap. And I looked at her and I said, it will be done. And I literally got up and I left and I looked at my husband and I said, from that minute, I was like, who, who do we need to call? Who's our legislator? Who's the senator? You know, and we just got busy and we just reached out to um, some folks who were real pit bulls in Connecticut. And they, thank God, said, yes, let's do it. And within, I think, 12 months, we had Ethan's Law signed by the governor. And then during this time, I was very vocal. I was very present. I was very out there talking about it. And so I get a lot of calls. In fact, today I spoke to two moms, one mother whose son used her ex's unsecured gun to die by suicide, and another one whose um, husband, who is now the ex-husband, he was a police officer, and her five-year-old son got the loaded handgun off the bed, the master bedroom and shot himself in the head and, and died. So I started hearing from all of these people around the country, what can we do? How can we change the laws? Can you help us? And I realized when we started studying the country that there are so many states that are silent on this issue. There's absolutely zero consequences for negligent gun owners. You're just asking for guns to be required to be securely stored. What is the opposition to that law? Who is the opposition? That's exactly right. Ethan's law requires gun owners to store their weapons if 18-year-old children or younger are unsupervised. So basically, it's trying to prevent unsupervised children getting access to unsecured guns. And yes, when I went into this, I was like, no one's going to oppose this. This is going to be easy. Guess what? Even though the NRA and the NSSF if you go on their websites, we'll talk at nauseum about if you have children in your home, it is your job as the gun owner to make sure that those guns are secured and those children cannot gain access. And so when I testified in front of Congress, the president of the NSF came down to testify against Ethan's law. And Senator Blumenthal really put him on the hot seat and basically cornered him. And basically what he came out was, is we don't want a mandate. We don't want to be told what to do, which is absolutely ridiculous because in this country, when there is something that is killing our children, Congress has jumped in immediately to try and rectify the situation. A couple months ago, we were in Senator Cassidy's office and I was saying to his staff, this is just an extension of all the safety legislation and ordinances that we have passed in this country, not because we want to infringe on people's freedom 
because we know statistically it works. We know that if you have working smoke detectors in your home, the odds are that you're going to be able to save your children from a fire. If you put your kids in a car seat, the odds are that if you get into an accident, your children will live. That is why we do it. This is just an extension of those safety laws. As you know, or maybe your listeners don't know, gun violence is the leading cause of death in this country to children. And according to the CDC, the number one cause of death for children ages 1 to 19 in this country is gun-related violence. Data from the University of Michigan also shows gun violence increased dramatically from 2020 to 2021. Chief Justice Correspondent Pierre Thomas is here with more about the epidemic of gun violence in the United States. Uh, Hi, Pierre. You and I have to talk about this all too often. What's the latest on these figures? Well, after a slight decline last year, Tuesday's tragedy is sadly more evidence that mass shootings are surging again. That means that your child has the greatest chance of being killed with a gun than any other danger that is facing them. And unsecured guns, by the way, are used in 76 to 80 percent of school shootings. These are shooters who have access to unsecured guns that walk into your school and hunt and kill your innocent children. So if we could just lock up those guns. How many children and teens die from accidental gunshots every year? So I never call it accidental because to me, accident implies that there was nothing that the gun owner could have done to uh, prevent that injury or death. And we all know better. It takes seconds to lock up your guns in a biometric or pink code safe. I always call them unintentional. Accident to me is something that it's completely out of your control and your child dies. That's not the case in these instances. The gun owner, the adult had absolute complete control to save their child or save another child. It's in the thousands this year. I think it's the absolute worst year it's been. And that is because there are 430 million guns in this country now. And if you're not locking up these guns, children will find it. And I can't tell you how many parents I've spoken to whose children have used their unsecured guns, the parents' unsecured guns, to die by suicide. And every parent says the same thing to me. I had no idea my child was in crisis. And I don't know if you have teenagers. You know, they're really good actors. They're really good actresses. They come into from school and we say, hey, how was school? Great. I'm going up to my room. I'm going to do homework. You know, it's really hard to get a, a pulse on them. And then they'll tell me how much their child was trained in gun safety. And I always say that, I know, but your child was in crisis. Anything that you've taught them is not what they're thinking about. They're thinking about how to end whatever pain they're in immediately. How many guns did you say there are? I want you to really say that number. There's 430 million guns in this country, and there's over 25 million assault rifles. And do we know what percentage of those guns are unsecured? Yeah. So before the pandemic is when really they took the last survey, and that was 4.6 million children are currently living in homes with loaded unsecured guns. Do you think I'm guilty of this, not thinking much about guns in homes where my kids visit? Am I alone in that? How do we fix that? That's a great question. And I talk a lot about that too. I meet with a lot of medical professionals. So when Ethan was killed in our pediatrician's office, nobody ever said one word about a gun. And I started talking to pediatrician's offices. You guys are the first line of defense. You work for the kids. That's your job. 
your job is to protect and keep them safe. And so you need to start having those uncomfortable conversations. And I will tell you initially, like in 2018, 2019, I got a lot of pushback. Mm, you know, then it gets into the Second Amendment, then I get people all pissed off at me. And I just kept saying, too bad, so sad. This one dad came up to me, I, I gave a speech and he came up to me and he goes, oh, I have a five-year-old and I got to tell you, I don't think I'm going to ask because it's uncomfortable. And I know like it's going to offend people. And I literally just looked at him and I said, you know what's uncomfortable? Sitting in your once happy home with a funeral director asking you, do you want to bury your child or do you want to cremate your child? What's uncomfortable is watching a child that was alive and vivacious and full of hope and future and dreams be lowered into the ground. That's uncomfortable. You know, I talk to a lot of police officers, same thing. Stop wringing your hands, begging people to secure their weapons. If there is a law in your state, you need to step up and you need to start prosecuting the negligent gun owners. And I actually just met with the chief state's attorney in Connecticut. I wanted her to understand that if we are going to have these laws on the book, it is your job as prosecutors to make sure that they are enforced. Because the goal is to create a cultural shift like we did with drunk driving. Any attempt to restrict drinking and driving here is viewed by some as downright undemocratic. It's kind of getting common this when a fella can't put in a hard day's work, put in 11, 12 hours a day, and then get in your truck and at least run one or two beers. They're making it laws where you can't drink when you want to. You, can't, you have to wear a seatbelt when you're driving. And pretty soon we're going to become this country. I don't know how old you are, but in my day, it was socially acceptable. People would literally say, do you want one for the road? Till mothers against drunk driving, till mad. Exactly. Until one mother's daughter got killed by a drunk driver. That drunk driver had zero consequences. And she said, oh, no, not my kid. And she's the one that started Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And she created this cultural shift. And I'm literally following her playbook. She, you know, she first got the laws on the books, you know, which took a lot. And then she made sure that the prosecutors, you know, and she had a huge organization helping her. They made sure that the prosecutors and the police were actually enforcing these laws, not because we want to fill our jails with people, because we want to prevent all of that. We want to prevent all of that. We want to create a moment where a gun owner says, hey, I'm leaving the house and I'm going to be leaving my guns at home and I got kids here and I've got kids who are visiting. I'm going to run up and I'm just going to secure those guns. And it's the same thing now. Like if you are out at a party, people will say, listen, I'm, I'm having one drink because I'm the driver tonight. So it took a long time to create this cultural shift, but that is my goal. That is my mission. That is what I am fighting for every day is to create that cultural shift. Clearly, you've met with legislators who are opposed to the law. If so, like, what do they say to you when they look you in the eye after you tell them your story? What do they say? Ted Cruz told me he did not want to criminalize gun owners. So unfortunately, on the national level, there's a lot of Ted Cruz's now. A lot of the moderates who I met with and who actually voted for Ethan's Law when it came up for a vote in the House of Representatives in 2022, a lot of them left. 
And I remember sitting with them, Rep Jacobs from the Buffalo, New York area. He said, I have two kids. This is not what I signed up for. I signed up to come down to Washington to make a difference, to make my constituents' lives easier. I didn't come down to be bullied by the MAGA Republicans and to be harassed. And so what they're doing is they're just driving out all of the moderate Republicans. And we see today who, who was elected as the Speaker of the House, someone who denied the election. I've met with his office. They told me it's a bridge too far for them to actually require gun owners to secure their weapons if there's unsupervised children in the home. And Louisiana has one of the highest death rates in children from unsecured guns. So they don't want to be mandated. They don't want another law. It's really the NRA playbook. What do you wish all parents knew about guns in America before letting their kids leave the house? You really do need to ask those questions and you need to do it unapologetically because you're a child's protector, right? So you need to be able to have a conversation with another parent saying, hey, listen, I have no issue with guns, but do you have guns in the home? And if you do, are they secure? Because kids are curious. First and foremost, it's important to understand that you absolutely have the right to ask. If asking feels awkward or difficult, consider these strategies. You can easily say that your doctor asked you to ask. It's certainly reasonable as a parent to say that, hey, you know what, my doctor actually told me to ask. Just like they told me to ask about an allergy, uh, they asked me also to ask about safe storage of a weapon because this can save a life. Uh, and I think most people will be surprised that the majority of families are actually okay talking about this issue. And it can't stop when your kid becomes the same height as you. When you have teenagers who are bigger and taller, then you start viewing them as young adults. And that's honestly when they're the most dangerous to themselves. So it is really as equally important to have that conversation with their friends, parents, even when they're 14, 15, 16. And for a long time, I'm sure you get trolled. I get trolled all the time. A lot of people blamed me for Ethan's death, saying that I should have taught him how to have more gun safety training. His best friend had just gone through the NRA safety training two weeks before Ethan was killed. And by the way, hung up his test that he got 100 on and his certificate on his living room wall. That child had grown up with guns. That child had just had the NRA safety class. But teenage boys, the definition is pushing the envelope, recklessness. And you know how we know that? Because we've taught our children not to do drugs. We've taught our children not to drink. We've taught our children not to speed. And all of those things still happen. And we are still losing children in car accidents and drinking and driving. They are independent of us and you can only pour into them so much. And at some point they're going to make their own decisions. And unfortunately for Ethan and his best friend, they made some very bad decisions and my son paid for it with his life. Tell us about the Ethan Miller Song Foundation and how people can support your work. So Ethan was killed at 404. PM and um, my husband and I sat in our bed and cried the entire night. And that morning I said, we need to do something to honor him. And so my husband started a GoFundMe page with a $5,000 goal. And I think we raised $150,000, $170,000. And so we started a foundation and we really based that foundation on the things that meant the most to Ethan, neglected and abused animals, marginalized and vulnerable people. He um, was the kid that if you didn't have someone to sit with at lunch, you were going to be sitting with Ethan. He was the kid that if you were in French class and no one was talking to you, he was going to make sure that he reached out to you. And these are stories that parents 
contacted me and told me about. One mom's son was Down syndrome, and she came up to me after and said, your son took such good care of my son. Ethan was very empathetic, so we, we do a lot with keeping kids safe, and he had such a love for this country. It really was pretty incredible for a 14, 15-year-old to have such an attachment to this country and how he really felt like it was everybody's job to join the military and protect this country and protect the people of this country. And so we honor veterans. We do wreaths across America. We help out veterans if they are um, short on like their mortgage or they're out of work. So we really just try to continue to honor Ethan with the things that were closest to his heart. After Ethan died, I did 105 more foster dogs and I stopped at 200 just because I was lobbying so often I wasn't home. Tell everyone the website. It's songstrong.org. And that name really came out from, I don't even know who dropped it off, but the week after Ethan died, someone dropped off these bracelets and I've worn them ever since. And it just reminds me that we're going to continue to fight till Ethan's law is passed and until we can protect and save our children. You said before when we started that you didn't think that you would, you would make it. Yeah. Obviously, there had to be a certain level of hope that keeps you going. What gives you that hope? That's a great question, too. I tell people, if you don't have hope in this business, you're not going to make it. You have to have hope. So one of the things that I did was I painted a wall in my office with blackboard paint. And I just sat one morning sobbing and I just wrote out 50 ways that I was going to honor Ethan. And those were things that were going to keep me on track because when you lose a child, you, you don't think properly. You can't even put a sentence together. And so I would come in every morning and the first things were like, take a shower, eat something. And then I'd get through the first 50 and I'd write 50 more. And then I'd write 50 more and I'd write 50 more. And that really kept me moving forward and giving me hope because I was accomplishing a lot of those little tasks that I had put. And every time I did, I, you know, it made me feel like I was, it was my way of continuing to love Ethan, even though he wasn't physically here with me. When he died, I felt my love stops because I'm not having any more memories with him. I can't hug him anymore. I can't hear his voice. I can't laugh with him. And for me, those were ways that I could continue to show Ethan how much mommy loves you. Those got to like the national level (laughs) where I'm fighting on the national level now. Kristen, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much. Let's turn to gun safety. It is an important conversation to have with your kids because the CDC says guns are the leading cause of death for children in the United States. Senior health correspondent Monica Robbins joining us now at the desk of What's New to discuss this issue and how you can approach it with people your child may stay with as well. Monica, good afternoon to you. This is a sticky subject and one that's really not easily easily discussed. It is, and everybody has to keep their politics in check because it's a really, really important issue. So, you know, a Kaiser Family Foundation study revealed seven kids die each day from firearms. Take a minute to think about that. It is a startling fact and an issue that needs more discussion and awareness. Now, studies show four and a half million kids and teens live in homes where guns are unlocked and accessible. Also, three out of four kids know where the guns are located in the home. What is it going to take 
exactly how many dead children is enough for our country to break the back of the gun lobby and its puppets in elected office. I mean, for fuck's sake, the NRA is arguing in front of the Supreme Court that domestic abusers should be able to keep their guns until they are convicted. That's who they are. How can we sit back and swallow the lie the NRA broke out after the Sandy Hook tragedy about the mythical good guy with a gun? How can requiring safe storage of firearms be a violation of anyone's rights? Or mandatory training? Or insurance? Or any of the basic common sense measures that Americans overwhelmingly support and they somehow oppose? They're trying to force a doublethink onto the nation, and we cannot keep letting them do it. But we do, every time, over and over again. We elect just enough of their mouthpieces that nothing changes. Nothing happens. That has to stop. Before it's my child. Before it's your child. Before it's too late. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.